Being a CISO is like waging a never-ending chess game against players you don't know, can't see, and attack without warning. On this podcast, cybersecurity experts have a pragmatic dialogue on cyber risk, current attacks, and security trends. Welcome to the CISO's Gambit. On this episode, I'm joined by Elena Alkina, partner at Alita Consulting where she leverages her 20 years of experience across law, privacy, and information security to advise leading organizations. Elena is a co-founder and board member for Women in Security and Privacy, a nonprofit organization that aims to advance women in the privacy and security fields. She also serves on the advisory board of Stay Safe Online's Data Privacy Day, where she educates and empowers our global digital society to use the internet safely and securely. Elena received her law degree from the University of Russian Academy of Education in Moscow, Russia. She received her master's of law degree from Berkeley Law School, where she studied privacy, technology transactions, and international law. Additionally, Elena is a certified information privacy professional. In 2018, she received a Global Mentor Financial Times Award Heroes, Champions of Women in Business. Elena was also named one of Forbes' next 1,000 in 2021. Elena, it's wonderful to chat with you again. It's been too many years since we actually had the opportunity to share any kind of stage. Dare say the last time we did something like this was maybe five, six years ago? That's true. I believe so. I think our last stage where we shared a very creative presentation on privacy and security was at BSR in San Jose at the IABB event where we orchestrated almost like a little theater. I still, Sean, I still get responses from the IABP educational board that it was one of the best presentations they had. And they never had someone to do this little theater with all these tools and, and things, how we broke down our theater stage versus operational complexity explanation to the people while we're doing this. And it was fantastic. A great, creative, collaborative effort. And I love that. I remember uh, being so difficult at the beginning of the process because you, me, and Vic had just started to get to know each other. And I was like, ah, I got this handled. And then you guys were so polite and uh, magnanimous. You're like, yeah, let us give it a shot. <laughs> it, it was the right call you guys made because I think I would have uh, driven that thing into the ground. You know, it takes a village. It takes a village to build something. I, I remember it was bumpy. I think we were kind of like, what are we doing? What are we trying to develop? What are we trying to deliver? But uh, we, we had fun uh, thinking through the process and I remember like nice dinners we have and discuss everything. And I really enjoy that. And we had people sitting on the floor for our presentation. Yeah. And I, yeah, I remember that yeah. was awesome. Was that was a great experience. Yeah. Elena, one of the things that was always so impressive when we first started to work together and got to know each other on the professional level was all of the amazing work that you had been doing in the industry for a very long time. I had just heard from our mutual friend, hey, this is like one of the top privacy minds in the world. Uh, you should get to know her. And then as we all started uh, collaborating, I remember getting a peek into actually all of this tremendous work that you were doing. And, and most recently, you have started with another 
set of partners, mm-hmm. Alita Consulting. Could you tell me a little bit about what brought this on and, and specifically yes. the area of focus? I, I'm happy to. Yes. So, gosh, I think it's been seven years. We're still relatively young. We're a national firm for privacy and data protection and information security. We started in 2016. And the story how we started was um, a little bit long and a little bit short, I would think. So a short version of it. After a board meeting, my two other partners, Kenisa Ahmed and Ale Gennaro at that time, now she's Ale Franklin, decided to go for drinks. And I remember I was very exhausted and I said, no, I'm not going to go, but like text me. Like, we were thinking about to do something different in privacy and security. And we feel like we were stuck in our current jobs. And at that time I was doing my own consultancy because I left McKesson, my last role in the privacy office, in the global privacy office. And even my boss said, Alina, you're not designed to be in-house. You need to create something. You're, you're the one who has to be your own boss. And you need to like really implement your ideas because clients can benefit from it tremendously. And that's what I kind of like follow his <laughs> advice or push. And my other two partners at that time had other jobs and they were thinking about leaving those jobs for similar reasons. They felt like there's so much to do in the industry and in the industry is just being born in the U.S. the way it was. Um, not like just financial industry has privacy, healthcare has privacy, right? The, the children's data, student data have very specific regulation, but that's it. No one else really care about it. There are some privacy notices, but People just take it from each other's website and no one checks them periodically. So privacy was a very new discipline. And at that time, so my, my colleagues went for drinks. I went to sleep and I remember getting a text message saying, hey, we're thinking of creating a business. Are you in? And I was like, yes, I'm in. Let's talk tomorrow. That's it. That was a very short story. We didn't even talk about, but we all, what united us even before 2016, when we started Alida. We all work together. I was in a global privacy office. I think I was number three hired McKesson. It's like Fortune 4 company at that time. PR is not there yet, but there is a lot of work to do. And I was hired to help building the global privacy program at McKesson. And of course, we're in different hats, being three and a half people on a team, working with different business units on privacy, security, data protection. We had to work with so many different law firms and consultants, see, uh, and Kenisa and Ali, my partners, were part of different agencies we work, and I love them the most. And not only me, my boss loved them uh, so much because the advice was very practical, very helpful. They were reasonable price for the quality of work they deliver compared to other bigger organizations who charge much more. And I love working with them. So I always would come when I have budget come to them to work with them. And we developed certain like friendship. And that's why after a while, we decided to build Women in Security and Privacy Fields before Alida. It's a nonprofit organization that was born about 10 years ago that was dedicated to advancing women and minorities in privacy and security. And at that time, it was very provocative because now the conversations of privacy and security merging, that's very normal. At that time, that didn't exist. We were thinking through this and realized that this is what we are lacking in the industry because the industry has evolved over time and we need to create a place to share resources, to create the future who will lead both industries 
And, and we feel like we need to address both privacy and security. So we've done tremendous amount of work on WISP and really got to know each other. And the most important piece, I think, before we started our leader that I want to highlight because our leader reflects how we operate and how we built our leader reflects, reflects on those principles. We always felt like we're very different. Three of us, we're very different women, but what aligns us are principles. We all wanted to create something where we can send elevator back because I've been doing privacy. I think it's going to be 20 years, like next year before what it became hot and sexy as it is right now. Kenisa Ahmed was doing privacy for a long time. She was part of the think tank. It's the future privacy forum. It's a well, well world known place where privacy initiatives like think tank. Um, another partner comes from big four doing security, architecture, auditing, like SOC compliance. So very different background. And we wanted to help others because we were so lucky with how we came to this point in our career and we were lucky how we get here. We wanted to upgrade opportunities because what we heard from people just said, there is no way to join the discipline. Like no one hires us because I don't have experience. How do I get experience if no one hires me? So that was one principle that we all wanted to work on. And second principle was that we wanted to be thought leaders. Obviously, we can't be thought leaders and call ourselves like that. We need to do the action in, in the industry. So people call us like, <laughs> like that. So we wanted to do something to advance the industry, really help create frameworks and practical advice to companies or work with regulators. And that was our passion because we felt like we have so much experience and the industry and regulators are lacking it. So we need to give back. And of course, we love privacy and security and we just love doing it and wanted to do it in a way that is very flexible and supports families and travel, etc. So we believe it's possible. It was before COVID. We created something that was, we created a national firm, built a, a very diverse team of auditors, regulators, technologists, engineers, lawyers, compliance specialists, and said that we're going to be that bridge between legal and technology and business. We're going to translate everything that legal says because you need to operationalize it. And that's what we do. We come as spare boots on the ground and extra brain for big and small companies. Majority of our clients are mid and fortune 10 companies. So usually don't have resources or need strategy, how to think about it and need extra help on the ground floor. And that's what we do. Both privacy and data protection, most of our clients are global, or at least with some global presence. And it's never been boring, definitely. Especially last year, how, how many local regulators been, uh, regulations have been popping up at mushrooms. I think it's refreshing that there's this unified approach that your organization, and I think progressive folks, just progressive leaders as a whole, are taking this much more integrated approach. And this has been some a subject matter that, ironically, it was what brought us together as colleagues, which was really how do we bridge that gap between information security, IT, and privacy. I was speaking with an organization a, a few weeks ago, and it was really apparent to me that uh, the council that they were working with actually understood technology. Mm -hmm. And it, that's out of hundreds of conversations I've had. And it was one person that seemed to understand 
enough of the technical side to ask better questions and your experience. What are the things that are red flags within an organization that is trying to bridge that gap? Because it is a vast gap. What have you found to be areas that are problematic where IT, security, and legal are really not understanding each other and really mm-hmm. could work together better? Yeah. Very, uh, very deep question. And I think some of it is, it's interesting to observe because I saw the transition from no, like just completely opposite sides. Right now, we kind of feel like the industries emerging, right? Privacy and security. And seven, maybe eight years ago, we saw how they became two sides of the same coin. They come together very often. It's very important. When I started in privacy, we were fighting who gets what with security team. Because I was at that time, I was in banking. That's my first exposure to, well, second exposure to privacy, the way it was in a highly regulated industry. And at that time, mobile banking was coming into life, like being launched. And our bank was designing systems and protocols and controls and everything. And I remember how we were fighting with security team for our privacy measures that we want to implement, and we couldn't do both. So we had to really negotiate who gets what at what point. It's ridiculous. I like to see my glass half full, and I, I feel like there is progress. But I think there is a lot of, there's still a lot of misunderstanding and I feel like lack of understanding about the privacy and security and the differences. Where are they different? Where are they overlap? Luckily, the culture is more comprehensive and awareness is there. So people think about them as more aligned versus in my years in banking, how it was completely really fighting one or another. You can't do both. But one example where I feel like there is still lack of understanding just recently, this example comes to my mind. I was, we were working on this in response plan. And when I bring up privacy incidents and how we need to differentiate security and privacy incidents and how are different processes and privacy incidents doesn't necessarily mean breach, like in security, but there are different things to consider and there are different players that need to describe the situation, take ownership of different steps. So it's lack of understanding sometimes the difference between privacy and security. I think another issue that people get wrong is it's prioritization. It's still businesses prioritize security or privacy and vice versa. So, and it's important to say that you can't neglect both. There's a both very important control that can ruin your reputation, your business, your, your sales, etc. So I think it's prioritization and then trying to tackle things in partnership. I see there is lack of that. There is so much to do in both industries that businesses get overwhelmed and they still don't have adequate protection in place for both privacy and security. And the lack of communication between privacy and security teams still exists. It makes it even harder because many controls, you can simplify your processes if you work together around this, but it just doesn't happen. It's just people have to reinvent the wheel on the privacy side working on similar controls while already security created something. So I still see this disconnect between teams, especially privacy and security and IT sometimes too, 
It takes me to transparency. Many businesses still work in silos. So there is transparency internal and external. So internally, many businesses work in silos. When there is a project, you don't get everyone at the same table. Like I work on my issues as a security team, then the privacy will work on theirs, then IT, then there is some like architect. But there's people are not in the same room at the same time. And of course, externally, companies do not utilize communicating only their privacy notices and policies, like their stories to customers. Because we don't understand. I think many companies do. They recognize the benefit. But I think many companies still underutilize the power of privacy. This is dollar value. This is the business differentiator. We still have some companies who come to us, like help us bring, create marketing materials or trust center to talk about privacy, to talk about security, our story, what we do it. Very often, like you can, come across like it's very thoughtful and diligent person, even though you don't have everything in place, but creating awareness that it's important to us. We're working on it. Here's our plan or here's our concerns and this is how we're solving it. It's a very vulnerable, but also very powerful step. And many businesses are not building on that. So of course, non-compliance, it, it remains. And obviously it's non-compliance is a never ending issue, especially with regulations behind when they go live. Do you think that, that that dynamic, the miscommunication, lack of communication between IT, privacy, security, do you think that's a remnant of the traditional attack defense approach that a lot of IT and security teams take with things like internal audit or external audit or a compliance team where it's a little bit of a cat and mouse. Is is it related to that? Is it adjacent to that? Or is it just a different little animal compared to what a security leader might see, which is they get ready for the audit. They know when it's coming. So everyone is uh, getting ready to prove the positive. With the legal side, though, obviously, when we're talking compliance in the in the layperson way, not in the regulatory way, but things like PCI compliance. Yes, mm-hmm. with PCI, but it's not compliance in the regulatory sense. Is that part of it where there's gamesmanship associated with it? Or maybe none of those. Maybe it's they are afraid to ask legal or privacy about something that they've seen or something that they're concerned about because perhaps... There could be negative ramifications for themselves or for the organization. Yes. I think it's a little bit of everything. Very thoughtful question. It's a little bit of everything, Sean. I think it's, I think information security as an industry is much more advanced on every level. Privacy is very new to US, even though it's been part of various industries for a long time. It's still very new concept, the way privacy is being shaped and evolved in the United States. Second, that piece of privacy, I almost see it as a compliance check mark. You know, how like I do it, one exercise, done. Annual assessment, done. Training, done. No one cares whether it's been remediated, almost. No, I'm just generalizing and a little bit exaggerating. But very often when I was on the compliance team, um, or both or legal team, we just felt like we do it, we know it. This is a remediation effort. We transfer it to business teams. Done. So we're not doing it. It's an ongoing process. It's not just one-time exercise. And I feel like in the past, those privacy issues were more like a check mark. I feel like information security has a very different approach. It's more ongoing. 
And again, like I, this is one of the things why we wanted to merge privacy and security because I felt like both of them can learn from each other, both good sides and maybe where opportunity exists. Also, going back to my thought that it's more like compliance check mark, how it was evolving in the beginning. Hopefully, it's better right now, at least in my opinion. Also, a lot of privacy experts came from legal. I feel like it's a big downside for the industry. Really? Because why, why is that? Lawyers, and I'm a former lawyer, I practice law, I quit 20 years ago. So there's a reason for that, exactly what I'm talking about. Lawyers usually, my role was always how to, very reactive. I address things when it happened and it was very challenging because of course there are always laws and regulations and you want to build something, you want to be proactive, but it's not really your role. Your role is really reactive in a way, almost. You just tell things that, like, that you cannot do it because it's not going to be good. That's why I very often consultant in my career, when I worked in house, consultant was very helpful with creating strategy. We take what law provided to us, all the great law firms provided, and we massage it, mix it with our risk appetite, with our business, with our goals. Where are we going to go? What geography? And we make sense of it. And that's the fun part, like it's like being an engineer. But I think the legal profession is just... it. The privacy legal risk is always going to be there. It's like any type of risk that our amazing lawyers help us to address. If it's M&A, there is always going to be a risk, but it's not just lawyers who do an M&A transaction, right? You need other people. Security, there's always going to be a risk. All these letters that you need to send and all these issues and filing that you're required to do nowadays. So lawyers are going to be instrumental with that. So we need to understand regulations. But it's security team who does everything else. Privacy is the same way. There's going to be always a privacy risk, but how you address this risk, how mitigate that, what's the best way for the business, that's not the legal job. That's the compliance work. That's the business role. That's the technology role. And I feel like because privacy was just kind of very young discipline, the way how it expanded and touched so many businesses, it's still very focused on legalese and that doesn't make sense to technologists. It doesn't make sense to business. And these are the people on the front row representing the company. And so I feel like that is slightly changing. I think the privacy legal risk is finding its own niche and it's always going to be there and thank God. But they're going to be privacy. They're going to be privacy engineers. They're going to be privacy code audit. There's going to be privacy compliance. There's going to be privacy technology. All of that, that, that's great. It's happening right now. It's just, we haven't experienced the birth of the new industry this way for a while. So I feel like it's not normal process, but I'm glad we're going towards, I think, right direction. There are many things needs to be improved in my opinion, but at least we're moving away and we separate. There is legal privacy, that's lawyers, and there is everything else. It's very operational. These are the people on the ground who need to create that or need to execute on this and they need help. And that's what I think a lot of companies are struggling with. You bring up a really good point about the privacy program that is, as you stated, grounded very much in legalese, to use your words. And one of the things that is interesting to me as a, as a risk professional is that the law or a compliance standard of any sort is, by definition, a pre-calculated control where the calculus for risk has already been done. It just hasn't been done by you. It's been done by legislators. It's been done by 
governments, it's been done by whatever the industry may be, it's effectively a policy control. And as a cyber person, because they're not written in, let's say, a non-functional requirement, a security engineer or architect might consume or an application developer might consume, there's a ton of interpretation that goes into it, which is a lot of the heart of practicing law. And I feel that sometimes not only is the interpretation done incorrectly, whether it's done incorrectly on purpose or accidentally, but I feel like, and I don't know if this has been your experience, that because of the way that a lot of legislation is written, not be necessarily clear for the perspective of a technologist. That is what causes a lot of this difficulty. Has that been your experience? Oh, yes. I think I I just feel for our regulators. I I haven't worked a lot with um, regulators just in general right now. My work in the past was with regulators in in, in healthcare and financial industry, like Dodd-Frank Act. They did a great job getting the technology business people from banking to come together to work on this. And we felt like it was, the industry was heard and we just were so optimistic and excited, spent two years doing this failure, total failure. It just didn't work out. And I feel like the, re- the regulations take such a long time. It's, it's very hard to make something that is going to be effective in a current moment when the regulation goes into the effect. I think one of the things regulators are doing well, they're getting those task force. Obama had one. I was part of it in some ways, like they were getting feedback and connections from people who are facing this issue day to day. It doesn't need to be privacy. Obama created so many task force that had collected feedback from various industries. I don't know how much it helped or hurt, but I feel like it's an important step to take. I feel great now with California Enforcement Agency, Ashkan Sultani. I am very excited to see his leadership. He is a technologist. He's seen the industry. He understands the impact on humans, on consumers. He has very good head on his shoulders, very fair, very knowledgeable, but also good heart. And I feel like that's going to be a little, I'm nervous, honestly, because this is the first time we have someone that knowledgeable about privacy and technology and how like it operates. I am very curious and scared to see the enforcement and how they're going to go. But this is what we need. We need more people like you and I and everyone else to be part of those conversations and not do it with closed doors and the same people all, all over being the same people participating in those discussions. Because you don't get new perspective if you keep asking the same people this like different questions, but there is no new perspective. And it's very hard to get there. And I think that's what regulators need to do. They need to get more fresh ideas and observations and feedback from different industries, from different perspectives. And one example, I I just was going to say that you fail, will fail in the beginning because when GDPR created the regulation, well, GDPR came into effect, it was principle-based. It was done on purpose, principle-based to be technology neutral, to allow space for interpretation, what it means in this time, because we, at that time, we didn't have AI. Now we do, right? So we're going to have flying cars and talking refrigerators and then computers built into our walls. 
So like, how are we going to do it? It's not just going to be the laptop. It's going to be everywhere you go. So we're not even talking about that piece. So I feel like the European regulators have a very good point. They wanted to do something principle-based because it's going to be more lived, thoughtful regulations that will address issues, but that can be interpreted by um, different guidelines for regulators to adjust to the current time or issues. U.S. approach is different. We're actually just like fixing the issue, fixing the problem. And, and I feel like it helps, but oh, it doesn't. Um, because with the moment regulation comes out, the issue is different. But also, maybe it's not the same impact. Like, let's say if it's a healthcare, uh, reg, I, I can see that. But maybe we don't need the same controls and requirements for some other type of data. Or maybe we do. Maybe we need to really carefully reevaluate like what data really needs certain protection and not everything requires everything uh, across the board. Everything has its pluses and minuses, but I feel like I'm more leaned towards the European approach, principle-based work. Yes, it does take time to create additional guidance, but I feel like you can adjust and pivot as the industry requires. I think it's important to be fluid nowadays. The SEC is... Very interested in this, and arguably they're 20 years late in doing anything here because we've seen the negative impacts to shareholders Mm -hmm. for a very, very long time when it comes to the subject of investor lawsuits, whether it's governments coming after organizations. And now with these new rules, it appears that the scope of some of these, and of course, we're talking about public companies, that a lot of these organizations are now going to be required to do additional disclosures, additional notifications, which I think is good. But what is your take on some of the things that are happening with these expanded disclosure rules, uh, which to me seem to be really basic, but I'm still not seeing, and it could just be my ignorance. Yeah. Um, a lot of legislation coming out on the preventative side. Yeah. To me, it's almost like it's like business malpractice in some organizations. I remember when all of these big breaches really, really started, let's say mid-2010s, and it was all over the news. And that was back in the day when they would all say, oh, this is an unprecedented mm-hmm. attack. And we don't see that anymore because everyone just knows that it's not really unprecedented and they're really not as sophisticated as we'd like to think. Some of them definitely are, but in the context of what's happening with some of this legislation, what would you say to somebody that's never had to really face yeah. Yeah. these enhanced requirements? Yes. And maybe for our listeners who may not heard about this, it's, it's, we're talking right now, the, SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission adopted rules recently that now public companies need to disclose material security incidents, material security incidents in four days and disclose information about their security risk management, strategy, governance, annually to enhance their programs and update and make sure their controls are in place in the increasing cybersecurity risk arena. So, and, and especially risks that have been faced by companies and affected investors. So it really brought a lot of stress on everyone. And of course, now the security is becoming not simply operational issue, but board issue. 
there is an issue how to define what material um, cybersecurity incident is. And it's a whole process. So we are actually working with quite a few companies right now, trying to help them think about the process, how to define material incident that is reportable. Uh, what's the process of making decision whether it's material or not? And what's, what's the rest of it, right? You have very short period of time when you have to disclose it. And you also really have to just make sure your program is up to date. So even though many companies keep the information security up to date, even though it's a constant challenge, it makes, it, it just adds more pressure to information security team that are already overworked. So it's not only information security team, by the way, it's compliance team, it's privacy teams, because there are many aspects that requires remediation that well, involves everything from those disciplines I just mentioned. Right. I think it's challenging also for companies who are thinking about going public. We right now just recently had a call with a partner, like a CPA firm that we work with. And we worked on some situations where we help companies go IPO. And some companies I know recently just decided, maybe I do not want to do that because it's for public companies. So that's another extra effort that is very costly, very expensive. And it's, and also that affects investors and the board. The process not only affected the compliance piece, but also the business side. It, it really stops, it slows down progress. That's what I think right. what I'm trying to say. It significantly slows down the progress because you just worry about compliance uh, patch uh, versus making a difference in the world or delivering services to someone or making things better. I always think that that's so sad that we have to deal with that. And I only, I'm being sentimental here, but it's a big no. issue. No, I think you're, I think you're spot on regarding that push and pull dynamic of it. To me, it begs the question is, it is a legitimate decision to say, I am not going to implement this set of requirements or this set of security controls because it's going to be detrimental to my organization. It's going to be detrimental to my business. And I'm not saying that any of these legislative tools have it figured out, not by a long shot. But where the risk decision is made not towards necessarily protecting the consumer, the customer, or the business partner, it's made towards, as you said, ensuring that you're executing on the mission or driving revenue. And I've, I've seen this in a lot of different organizations that they say, hey, we're not going to upgrade this system or change this network piece because it's going to be very disruptive to the business. And it's like, okay, totally understand that. But yet there's this implicit risk acceptance that is occurring, whether legal is aware of it or not, that then you find yourself in a very difficult situation when something negative does happen. As, as we've seen with a lot of organizations that are struggling with very large data breaches, security has been in a really tough spot for a long time, partially due to the rules of role segregation. And it's an important control and that being that the person that is responsible for setting policy is not the person that is implementing policy. This is pretty fundamental. And what I've seen it do, unfortunately, is that cyber and privacy are beholden to the willingness of those individuals that actually have the ability to make these changes, whether that's something as fundamental as administrative access on a server okay. um, or somebody within, let's say, a policy team in human resources or in legal 
saying, oh, yes, I agree, we should put that in place. What are your thoughts? Yes, I think, oh, there's so many thoughts that come to my mind, but um, I think all of those commitments will become almost like ethnical commitments at some point because, and I'm not sure how it's going to be solved with the industry in general, because how can I, let's say right now, like so many companies, their budget is frozen. So like it's on hold, like nothing is happening. If I am a CISO, let's say, and this is the requirement just like hit me, I need to do this. I have only like so many people who already overworked because we laid off people and my team morale is low and they are at the burning point and I need to do this. I can do it. What are my ways? I can do it in-house, which is going to cost us more burnout, more stress, more probably people who quit. Probably we also have to spend more time, which will take us time from our regular duties that we're already covering for people being laid off. Or we can bring another company who can do it, who can do it and help us and will significantly help us to reduce the cost, but there's no budget for this. So still have to do it. And I feel like this is the conversations where like, who's going to be responsible for it nowadays? And is sister going to have that responsibility and pay for that? That I know it's been, you know, big change in the industry where there is a criminal and civil liability that CISO can take over on his shoulders. And and I feel like that's not completely fair. Like very often, the decisions are made not by um, CISO, by, by the organization itself, by deciding how much help and empowered and decision-making power those individuals have. And you can't just leave them drowning without support. I just feel the pain when I work with our clients or potential clients, just having those discussions. And they say like, how, how do I do this? Like, I need to get that. And I, I am lost. I, a budget is done. I need to implement the rule. I need to find a way to work. I just can't do it to my team. Yeah, that happens a lot. And that's a, that's a very difficult path to have to, to tread because yeah. it's a very delicate balance for the CISO or the head of security to be stern and committed to what they need to accomplish, but not so much to where people stop picking up the phone when they call because everything seems like it's a favor. Yeah. Could you do this? And and it's it can be very glib to say, well, you have to start at the top and set expectations at the top, but at the top isn't where the work is being done. Yeah. It's being done two, three levels below the top. And sometimes those individuals aren't necessarily in the boat with the security team, the privacy team at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's always been a challenge, right? Um, but the recession, it's very hard. And, and the regulators are not stopping. It's not slowing them down. And the enforcement is more aggressive. Set. They're going to be aggressive. They've always been in a way. But uh, this rule is just like, I think to me, it's just like a, a statement, like, we're coming. Yeah. We're going to be, we're going to be doing something. You get ready. And that's why I feel like one of the things is helpful, like going back to our discussion with regulators, I always feel that the industry frameworks been doing a fantastic job. I want to applaud them. Um, I'm part of some of them. NIST done tremendous work. Where is workable or not, 100% or not, that's a different question. But I feel like the industry provided so many helpful tips and guidance and elaboration. Like, what do you need to do? Why is that important? How it aligns? 
Um, it's done some fantastic work when aligning like some of the privacy framework requirements with information security framework requirements and also some CPRA. It's like, wow, that's a lot of work. That's what we do usually. And I understand the complexity and they've done it just as a hobby in a way, right? So a lot of people are volunteers who are working. I know there is another group that is doing a lot of work on data inventory, which is the most critical first step that every organization needs to do before you dive into anything, knowing what you have in, with your, like, in your data, where you have it, how you get it, what's your information lifecycle. So many companies have no clue what it is. It doesn't matter if you're security or privacy, you need to know for different reasons, sometimes the same. And companies are still struggling. And I just want to applaud if you are in those industries groups and listening to this podcast. Thank you. It's huge help. I see the enormous amount of work and every industry expert is part of this task force. It's just amazing um, because I think it adds so much value while regulators are trying to create something that is going to be perfect. By the time it's released, it's not perfect anymore. The industry group are just like getting their hands dirty and just like, we're going to do something. We're going to do something that's going to be helpful. And I, I really applaud that hard work from those groups. That's always been an area that's dear and dear to me, having been involved for so long in a yeah. lot of these. And you're right. It is a lot of really awesome people in their spare time going mm -hmm. in there and saying, I want to help. And that's something that I'm sure in other industries, they have something similar, but at least here with my bias as a security person. It's fascinating to watch and the amount of effort that contributors are willing to put in. One of the things that is incredibly hot right now is the rise of AI ML and some of the implications for privacy and security professionals. I am seeing across the privacy and data protection space where some organizations are taking a very hard stance and saying, at least in the context of my business, my organization, you shall not use this technology. I've seen it on the other side where it's like, use the technology as much as you want, whenever you want to get your job done better. But you as a data security and privacy expert with your experience in these massive organizations, what are some of the things that have you concerned or excited about what these things could potentially mean for the industry as a whole? Well, yes. Oh my God. The AI topic. I don't think you can skip any meeting nowadays, right? Um, forget about presentation or conference oh. as without AI being mentioned. I feel like you always need to have a drink every time you, <laughs> someone says AI. Dude, we should. Yes. I don't think anyone is getting out of the room after that, but so. Yes. So we work with many clients who are thinking about it. Many of them are thinking about it more kind of like, here's the problem. We're going to find solution. There are still few companies who are thinking about AI utilization internally and externally and like strategically building the program. I think even if they're building, it's just kind of slow because people are nervous. I always feel like, remember big data term when it came around, it's just like everyone was just like, what's big data? What's big data? And then cloud, everyone was just like, cloud, cloud. They were talking about it, barely understanding what it is until, you know, so time passed. And now I think it's AI because people just talk about this and it creates so much noise and confusion and stress for companies. And in reality, I feel that very few companies have an organized approach towards AI. 
and meaning they haven't decided what they're doing with that, how they're using it, what are the use cases, what are the controls that come in place, where it sits and who runs it, who is responsible. There are some basic components before each program, like you need to think about it strategically. These are the questions that most of the companies been discussing. It's been like sometimes months, sometimes like over a year already. In the meantime, things are happening. People are using AI internally, sharing information about clients. And even if some data is being de-identified, still there are uh, attacks that can infer data from information employees or um, others put into um, AI tools, especially free tools. I think attackers now, you see, see more attacks that, that exploit those vulnerabilities and infer private details from information from AI tools about other individuals. Usually not the individual that put something into the AI, but about other individuals. I think there is a fear about AI in some way because there's so much unknown and there is so much noise and you always feel like I should probably know all of this, but I'm not. So I'm going to pretend I know and like, but you still need to be transparent. If you are someone who is running the program or setting it up internally, you need to communicate where you are. And this is the control we have because this is where we are. And as we start growing and evolving and think about use cases, how we can utilize it, we can update you. I have both clients who stop utilization of some tools like Grammarly, because sometimes like you have to enter the text to correct. And some text is very private and has some data, especially if you're like healthcare company or any company. So, and Grammarly, it's the same kind of like AI. The data is being used, whatever you put in it, the, the system is using it to train itself. So it's the, the algorithm. So. There are a lot of companies reevaluating vendors that utilize AI, even if it's an internal vendor. And many companies in realize that they're utilizing tools they shouldn't be utilizing because how data is being transferred to other parties and how they don't have control over that data. Concern and control is another piece. Individuals have concerns about how their data is being used and who has control over it. And the consent mechanism it hasn't been addressed yet. It's very hard in the AI environment. So it's going to be a lot of work for us privacy professionals to think about that, but it's, it's challenging. And of course, building the tools, right, for external use, that's another piece. We went to TechCrunch conference in San Francisco and we looked into AI tools for legal and compliance purposes. We actually have one tool for consultants, which I would like to explore. It's more for us, for internal use, but it helps with efficiencies and eliminate some note taking and just like action items, agenda items, follow up. So these are very helpful tools. I really believe that it can help. But when you start writing, reading the terms of conditions and you feel like, no, that's not how it works. You explain to me that's going to work this and this, but it's not. The data is being used to train the algorithm and may potentially you have access to it. So. These are the things we can do. We work with our clients. We have confidential data. And so I feel like I, I can bring a lot, but I'm also, I got to say that I'm personally scared uh, of AI. I think it's a dangerous space uh, where we're going with this and it might be very hard to stop it. So I'm glad that there is, I think at least right now, there's a good balance. Um, Oh, I even forgot like how, how certain decisions going to be automatically made, yeah. how it's going to affect all the issues we've been fighting for so much for diversity and inclusion and 
loans being terminated, denied based on some AI algorithm or acceptance to schools or jobs just based on the name or something. So it's, it's dangerous. It's a very dangerous space. And uh, I feel like we need so many good hands around the same table addressing it. And data minimization, forget about it. <laughs> Do you think there will ever be a point where yeah. some of these AI companies that are primarily focused in consumer level data analysis review to feed the model. Do you foresee any future where those algorithms would be disclosed similar to the way that encryption algorithms are disclosed and then vetted by mathematicians, cryptologists that then study and can prove out the efficacy at scale? Some years ago, I was chatting on the subject at RSA during a panel, and the subject of bias in AI models, which is a very real thing, because mm -hmm. models are written by humans as of now, and the fact that uncommunicated, unconscious bias can and will show up in code. And there's been examples of this where people get profiled because of whatever parameters have been fed into the model that say this profile matches whatever it is, right? I completely agree with you that if it's not ready for prime time and starts being leveraged, as you said, to make decisions, big decisions. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it would be wonderful if that would be one approach, how we can mitigate the risk, how someone can evaluate those protocols. I think it's, it, Needs to be like it's like use cases, right? So, depending on the use case, certain information does require the same protocol, but we need to come up with some type of range of different control that we can then outsource to someone who will evaluate it for different aspects. Like if it's situation with kids, which is what we're looking like, maybe safety, maybe like bias, or if it's something else, like let's say it's immigration issues or financial decisions. So we need to make sure we don't have any bias or some other things. Like if it's uh, like a tracking app, like we want to make sure we eliminate some other concerns for safety. Let's say if it's for women, there's some a lot, but there's a lot of complexity. And I think we need to have someone who is like a, I don't know how would we call it, the advocate or something. I don't know, an engineer who will look for those loopholes or gaps and also share it with others. So here's what you do. The only thing, of course, is going to be never-ending process because hackers will immediately utilize it to improve their methods and go back at companies to use it against them. But I always feel like the open source community always comes together. I always feel like I, I like thinking about this, that sharing is a good way to improve something because like, it's one brain versus hundred brains working on something. It's going to make it better. But I'm wor I worry about this a lot. I worry about these companies, just like how they think about it. It's very, just minimum step. But I worry just in general where AI is going to take us. Don't have good feelings about it. So maybe I'm very biased from the beginning and it should be, maybe I should reevaluate my thinking. But just too many movies I watched about it that didn't end up well. <laughs> I'd blame Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, I think Hollywood's done a good job of giving us the fear of sentient AI, which is funny that the whole nature of the fear around sentient AI is inherently biased because it's written by humans. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the, the 
Armageddon case, kind of like in Fallout, the video game yeah. where yeah. Yeah. you know something happens because the machines will turn against humans, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that stuff yeah, is pretty I, scary. It is pretty scary, and that's the thing. It's like I come from um, my environment. I grew up in the Soviet Union, where my parents were in a secret city designing a bomb. So everything was monitored. And I feel like if we're going into these computed systems, that's going to be everywhere we are. It's not going to be like just a piece of hardware. It's going to be everywhere implanted in us, into walls, into like devices. And we're all going to communicate. And imagine AI behind it. There is no privacy. There is no just like thought even. Like I feel like everything is going to be there. Like Again, I'm exaggerating right now. Obviously, we have a lot to go. But these are the things that we're already talking about all of this. How all the systems, like Nest, talk to a different room and there is camera and you can talk. It connects to my phone. My phone is listening. It's and Where does it end? Elena, I want to thank you so much again for coming on the show. If uh, our listeners would like to learn more about your work that you're doing, as Alita Consulting through your partnership, if they'd like to learn more about some of the work that you're doing across the community from a privacy perspective, a lot of the contributions you've been making for a long time, or would like to get involved in WISP, what would you recommend? Yes, if they would like to learn about WISP or Alita or need some help with any work or even career path. Feel free to reach out to me. I'm going to share my email. It's Alina, my first name, E-L-E-N-A at alida.co. And I'm happy to schedule time with you. I promise this is one of my mission in life to give back to the community. If you would like to get into privacy or security, I'm happy to discuss your path with that. There are a lot of people who switch careers very late in life from executive levels to privacy. So we've seen it all. I'm happy to share happy to connect you to the best resources. But I got to say, like, just, you know, if you think about like the going to law school, we're going to make you great professional privacy. No, it doesn't. I went to third law school to quit practicing law because I realized it doesn't give me all the tools I need. Technology, understanding technology, understanding how to be the bridge between people because privacy is affecting everything and everyone. When the more we're becoming tech focus world, the better of worse is going to get. So just really like, just be curious about things, understand technology, be that gap between people and um, technology. And, and again, happy to connect and strategize your specific situation. Thank you, Elena Okina. Always a pleasure to reconnect and get your perspective. Oh, thank you, Sean. So great to, to see you again and chat with you. It's just like, I'm so glad we reconnected again. You've been listening to the CISO's Gambit. I'm your host, Sean Cordero. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this show, please leave a comment and subscribe. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com.